Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. This has been an unusual year to say the least, and because our concerns tend to be reflected in the ways that we use language, we've invited our favorite word mavens, the brother and sister team of Catherine and Ross Petrus, back to our show to talk about how these events have affected our language. Their most recent book is Awkward, spelled A-W-K-W-O-R-D, Awkward Moments, A Lively Guide to the 100 Terms Smart People Should Know. And like their other books on language, that doesn't mean what you think it means and you're saying it wrong. It's published by 10 Speed Press. They also have a podcast called You're Saying It Wrong. And we would love to hear from you if you have any questions for Kathy and Ross. Uh, the number to call is 212-209-2877. You might want to write that down. 212-209-2877. Kathy and Ross, welcome back to our show. Good to have well, good good to have you. I was going to say, excuse me. Good to be back. <laughs> it's always fun. Every tube <laughs> because this. Oh boy, that was a, okay. I'm not even going to comment on that joke Sorry. because because this is a, is is that going to become a verb? I'm, I'm like barking. Became <laughs> you never know. Neologisms abound. <laughs> Because this is an, uh, the election season, can we talk about some words that we've been hearing a lot lately? Uh, watching the lead up to last night's debate, I heard a number of commentators use the word podium to describe um, wh where the uh, where the president and, and the former vice president would be speaking. Uh, word that uh, what they would describe what I would call is a lectern. Have those two words become interchangeable now? They basically become that. It's one of my personal pet peeves. Podium comes from uh, the ancient Greek, and the pod, as in you know, podiatrist, refers to the foot. Mm -hmm. So technically, when a guy pounds the podium, he, that means he's pounding the floor, which is not the case. Mm -hmm. Lectern comes from reading, and that's the thing where you put your book. So I, uh, I think you should probably make that distinction, but virtually no one else does. We see it all over the place podium being technically incorrectly used, but language has changed. And another example is almost everyone is saying the media is rather than the media are. That's another example, like Ross said, I think, where something becomes so commonly, you're right, it's wrong. I mean, media is, is um, plural and medium, you should say the medium is, the media mm. are. But I think that to my ear now, media is so often used as an is word, a, a singular. It sounds a little strange when you say the media are, and I think it sounds a little stuffy to keep saying the medium, unless you're being very specific or unless you're talking about a psychic, which is another story. But um, <laughs> or, the, or saying the medium is the message. Yes. That's, that's fine. I have no problem with that. <laughs> but I do think, like, and I, I oughtn't. If I did, I, I wouldn't be writing these books, I think. <laughs> Another phrase we're hearing a lot is battleground states. Is there a tendency to compare political campaigns to wars? No question about it. It's always the case. And I think in this particular match, it's very much like a, a, very much like a uh, war. Well, how far back do, does that go? Were we saying battleground states in the 19th century? You know, of course, literally during the Civil War, that was the case. 
<laughs> That's an interesting question. Battleground State, um, I'm checking on that. Hmm. Oh, boy. It, they say here, I've read that it, it does apparently, actually you're sort of correct, it began as early as 1860, they say mm-hmm. here, or just before the Civil War, and then it actually became a real war. So it might, it, it's an old sort of term. But I think it's interesting, too, because COVID and the um, coronavirus has also taken on a lot of uh, battle mm-hmm. war-like uh, words as well. And to the extent that it's some – I was reading there's a, a, a new impetus trying to get away from those battle-type words to try to make it a health concern instead. Well, not just battleground, but also we – Reporters tend to refer to the election and polling as a horse race. So, um, <laughs> so we either apply sports or military terms uh, to describe electoral politics. Well, I think I think Americans, in particular, think of it. We do think of uh, our, our our politics as either battles or as sports. Mm. It's funny because I moved up to Toronto in Canada. And Canadians are fascinated by the American fixation with debates and all of that. I remember a couple of years back watching back-to-back an American debate and a Canadian debate. And the Canadian debate was filled with policy and people talking very seriously. And to, to some degree, it was, as an American, it was boring. And I think I want the excitement of a of – a, not now. I'm tired of excitement right now. Yeah, right. I was going to say, watch yourself, Ross. <laughs> I don't want any more excitement this year. We have had plenty of excitement. Uh, by yeah, the way, it's I becoming glad- that- I was Go thinking ahead. of gladiators, and, and it would be a little more interesting if debates were were sort of done a little more like that, but it could get a, a quite intense, even more intense than it is. A reminder to our listeners, if you want to join this conversation about language, and it doesn't have to be about the words we're discussing, our number here is 212-209-288. Seven seven. Well, President Trump used the phrase witch hunt last night uh, during the debate to describe the investigations into his finances and other questionable practices. Does that term date back to the Salem witch trials? Pretty much, yes. I mean, it's obvious. Well, not only then, because you'd had the whole um, witch stuff during the um, Inquisition, too. So. Uh-huh. The whole notion of witch hunting, though, I think, did catch on mainly during in the United States, obviously, during the, for the Salem witch trials. And now it's made its way, again, into sort of a more colorful uh, metaphor for, for any type of uh, perceived unfair persecution. It's also very apt right now with uh-huh. Halloween coming up. Although, I'm interesting because I'm looking at an article on witch hunting today. And witch hunting first appeared in England in the 1600s, but uh-huh. witch hunt and witch hunter first came in the 1800s. And then witch hunt as a verb, we're doing witch hunting, uh, I'm going to witch hunt or whatever, came in the 20th century. So it's interesting I was going to say that, I apologize, Russ, I was cutting you up, but witch hunt um, used the way we're talking about it um, as an unex- you know, like unfairly persecuting someone, I believe actually caught on from Orwell. I think Orwell was the yeah. first to, to actually use it in that sense, to not not as literally a witch hunt referring to witches. 
Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. On one of your recent podcasts, you looked at words that used to have positive meanings, but are now seen as negative. And I was surprised that two of those words are bully and demagogue. How have their meanings changed over the years? That was a fascinating one. It's it, the technical term, if you want to be like a, a linguist, is pejoration, as in something becomes, it's a pejorative, something something that st- was once a very happy word, a very good word, the word that everybody liked, becomes a, refers to something negative. Bully was the one that fascinated me, because that's a word you hear so often nowadays with everybody talking about bullying and so on. But that initially meant sweetheart, which is, uh, you, you would never really? think. It came from the old Dutch word meaning lover, B-O-E-L. I, I'm not going to try to pronounce it in uh, old Dutch. But it was a lover of either sex, and um, it slowly became negative, and now we, we mean, you know, it means someone crueler to somebody weaker than they are. But you would never have thought that. And then demagogue? I always thought that uh, ever since I uh, have heard the word, it always has had a negative uh, meaning. In fact, recently we discussed... Uh, a book about uh, Joseph McCarthy that was titled Demagogue that's by Larry Tye. I mean, that gets back into ancient Greece. The word came from the Greek, and it literally means, demos in, in Greek means, uh, you know, means people, and it literally mm-hmm. means a, a leader of people. Even, oh and it's sort of, this is a word that I'm not sure is much pejoration as sort of like a kind of a sine wave. It goes up and down. Even in ancient Greece, to some degree, with some people, it had the bad connotations that we that we think of now, but in other cases, it had the simple meaning of a of a leader of the people. But it very quickly, by the well, I say quickly, it's over two thousand years. It came to me what we mm-hmm. mean today. A major issue in the election is uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic, which has engendered new uses of words. For example, we're hearing about. Social distancing, shelter in place, self-isolation, quarantine, lockdown. All of those terms were in use before, but haven't they taken on very specific meanings because of the pandemic? Absolutely. Social distancing is the one that fascinates me the most because, I mean, it's been around for a long time, the term. It initially was a sociological term, and it was um, related to the the practice of, of being remote or emotionally separated from another individual or a group of people, a social group. And then in, um, I think it was the 2000s, the early 2000s, the notion that it is used now as in maintaining physical distance began, and it began in a very way. It was uh, referring to distancing yourself for, to avoid the flu, the spread of flu, mm-hmm. socially distanced. And now I'm finding more and more people are also using it, not just the physical distance, like the six feet away, or now they're saying 12 feet away, uh, who knows how long it's going to be. But um, also it's being used as a kind of uh, stand-in for the word social isolation, to staying, you know, limiting contact in general, mm-hmm. as opposed to just the walking six feet away from somebody. So it's, 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 you're seeing language changing really quite rapidly, I think, right now. We uh, have invited listeners to give us a call and to join this conversation. Our number here is 212-209-2877. And my guests are uh, Catherine and uh, Ross Petrus. We're talking about language. Let's take a call. BAI, you're on the air. Hi, 
Yes, hi. Uh, this is Louise. I'm calling from Greenwich, Connecticut. Uh, I, I love your conversation about words. It's always um, an inspiration to learn new words and evaluate how people say things. One of my pet, and I, in fact, last night I, I did think of podium and lectern. When, mm-hmm. So that was interesting that you brought that up. And you're about and to say pet peeves, another one of those phrases. <laughs> One of my pet peeves is when uh, so many people misuse this, but my mother was the one that pointed this out to me. The reason is because, the Mm. reason is that, of course, is correct. And it's a double uh, expression to say the reason is because. And I can't resist pointing that out to people when I hear it used, but that seems to be an accepted way to say it. Now, everyone on the news, the media, everyone uses that, and I I wish somebody would speak up about that, which is why I'm calling. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. It's it's one of those ones that drives me crazy, too. Ross is going to explain, I think, why it should. (laughs) (laughs) The interesting thing was Miriam Webster, actually, this one really interested me because it bothered me, too. And Miriam Webster did a long study of the reason because, and they found um, a number of cases, such as uh, Francis Bacon back in the 1600s and uh, Jonathan Swift and our own very own John Adams arguing after the Boston Massacre, all using this uh, construction. I don't think it it excuses them. I don't like the the term either. (laughs) So it goes back that long ago. Wow. Well, it gets even worse, though. I don't know if you guys have heard this when they say, the reason why is because. That one really, it's like you're taking it another step, you know. (laughs) Part of the problem is that when I hear those things uh, and alarm bells go off in my head, I have to decide whether to say anything about it. And generally, because I, I think that uh, would be rude, I, hold, I bite my tongue. Another phrase like that is, it's really unique. I, I always want to say, if it's unique, it's, it's really unique, because that's the, the meaning of unique. But I, I don't say it. I don't either. But I don't like when people say that or the most unique. This uh-huh. is the most unique uh, place I've ever been. That always drives me up the wall as well. I don't say it either. Yeah, I don't either, but I, I'm with you both. I, the problem is, is I bite my tongue as well. I think that we have to we have to give people a little slack, even if it drives us crazy. Okay, caller. Thank you so much for your call. Let's go to another call. BAI, you're on the air. Hello? Yes, hi. Oh, Leonard Lopez. Yes, that's me. Oh, great. Well, good afternoon. Uh-huh. <laughs> I have... I have a position that makes me wonder. The American Sign Language has recently dropped of, for, on, above, with, and now the signs are incomprehensible insofar as I can tell. What do you think? Or do you know? This is something I don't know about. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. So you're saying they've dropped... They've dropped all, which were the words that they've dropped? On, above, without, within, of, to, which, 
position. Wow. So the, so how I'm I'm fascinated. I did not know of this, and now I'm gonna well, I'm gonna like read up on it because that must be me. almost impossible. Well, pardon me. Excuse me. American Sign Language. There are other groups of sign language people. But recently, like what, 10 years ago, a score years ago, they dropped those words. That's interesting. I want to find out what the reasoning was. My, My daughter, the first book that she chose from the library when she was in school and was allowed to bring it home, Mm-hmm. Was American Sign Language for the Deaf. Now, mm-hmm. there's a lot of difference of now from deaf and then from deaf, but deaf is deaf. And so, what are we talking about? And who's on the, who's on the point? Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. I'm, I'm only trying to be clear, but mm-hmm. it's become most difficult. My name is Ruth. Yeah, Ruth, I can thank you so much I'm, for your I'm, call. I'm, I'm from. I'm from the Garden State right now, but I'm Pensy people. My daughter's a Jersey girl. Okay. Thank you so much for your call. Uh, and we uh, invite more calls. Our number here is 212-209-2877. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming at WBAI.org. A listener wrote in asking about how the, the uh, Republicans now don't say uh, – Democratic, like democratic policies and the like. They say democrat policies. Um, the president always does. Uh, is that a fairly new thing? That is one I'm that sorry. I had thought was new, but it's not as new as I thought. Oh, really? I haven't heard it until fairly recently. I noticed, I've noticed it myself. It's, so, um, it's a way I'm of sorry, putting it on. down, isn't it? It's a it oh, yeah, it, it, it definitely uses a pejorative. And it, it um, the first usage I had seen of it in modern times was back in the 80s. Um, the U, United Press, UPI, um, had said that it was being used because they didn't like the word democratic because it, it implied that Democrats were the only uh, supporters of democracy. So Democrat they preferred as opposed to Democratic, and it was definitely used as a pejorative. And I think it kind of faded out. I didn't hear it as much until recently, but yeah, it's it's being majorly used. Uh, William and the funny... wrote, I think... Go ahead. Oh, William Sapphire wrote, I thought, a really good reason why they're doing it. He said Democrat Party, in effect, is a slur, and it conveniently rhymes with autocrat, plutocrat, mm. and worst of all, bureaucrat. And mm. he wrote that in 1993. So that might have been the beginning of a resurgence of the word again, used that way. But I didn't—I don't recall really hearing it until fairly recently that often. Let's take another call. BAI, you're on the air. Hi, it's Russell up in White Plains. Hi, Russell. Hi, I, I registered as a Democrat in 1974 all my life. I'll tell you why they call it Democrat Party, and I do too, because it's not democratic. If it was, we'd have Bernie Sanders running against Trump. It's a, a party full of Democrats. It's more like a cult. But what I'd like to ask your guest, I was watching this thing about Catherine Oxenberg and her daughter in the Nexium cult, and they refer a lot to neuro-linguistic programming. And I'd like to ask your guest, if you think this, this technique of saying you wear a mask to protect others, and if you don't, you're a bad person, will lead to people being put in sanitation camps and the experimentation on these people for vaccines, because this is neuro-linguistic programming. It's an abuse of the language. It's fascistic. Thank you. 
Okay, thanks for calling. What What is your take on that? I'm not sure I agree with him, but... I, a... I, I think I'll refrain from comments. <laughs> <laughs> Before we go to another call, I'm, I'm wondering about whether there is a difference between epidemic and pandemic that's clear to people because uh, they seem to be be using them almost interchangeably these days. That's interesting. Yeah, pan oh, I'm sorry, Ross, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. It's just we're talking about pandemic epidemic, and I think that's, that's, that's your purview because it's all about the ancient Greek. Well, it actually, I mean, it's, it's really sort of simple and then sort of complicated. The, before we go to the ancient Greeks, the technical terms that they used to use were the first thing is an outbreak when the disease sort of appears locally. Epidemic is a bigger sense of the disease. It appears more than locally, say across several states or across several countries. Pandemic, pan in Greek means all. And basically when you get to the pandemic stage, it's everywhere, like right now with COVID. Mm. And it's an easy so distinction to make, although apparently now the WHO, the WHO, don't like using those terms anymore. I think they, they got a little bit nervous about them. Should we take another call? Yeah. Absolutely. BAI, you're on the air. Tom from Brooklyn. Uh, Go ahead. I've, you know, the, uh, the word concerning used in answers, a, a uh, noted authority or anybody will be asked the question, uh, uh, what do you think of these COVID numbers? And they say, I find it very concerning. It, it's a non-answer answer. <laughs> I ask you a question. I expect you to uh, say something that might answer my question. Concerning doesn't tell me anything except you don't have an answer. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot of that in English. You just have those like non-answers, non-words. It is sort of they're fillers actually, and it's like you nod, use your little filler, and hope the person goes away because you don't want to comment any further. You know what I mean? Yes, I agree. <laughs> so okay, well, thanks for your call. I guess okay. the answer is that we want to flatten the curve. <laughs> Yes, always. Seventy-five now, years that, old. I want that. <laughs> now that, we now all that, do. <laughs> that is, uh, um, I assume, that's a mathematical term initially. Flattening the curve. Yeah. Makes you, makes you want to go back and study parabolic uh, curves. <laughs> oh, parabolas were always my my bed noir in uh, school, as I recall. Okay. We, thank uh, you very much. Thank you so much for your call. Uh, we've also heard a lot about social bubbles, quarantines, uh, quarantine pods. Have um, they all been coined during this pandemic? The pod one has been, and that one fascinates me because I find myself really using it. Now, I think of quarantine and I think of bubbles and pods. And obviously, bubble and pod are both old words. They've taken on a new meaning, and I think they're going to keep on with that meaning. I, I think of it all the time. My son came and visited. I thought we're in a pod right now. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. I think that, Ross, you've raised a good point, that there are certain words that have come up or new usages that will stay with us. But I think there are others that are probably, once this is finally gone, um, going to fade. Don't you think that, there, that, that mm -hmm. there's just like a difference? There's some ones that just like are just going to stick that have some – stick to and others that are just too, uh, 
too specific. Like COVIDiot. Yeah. Although I do love well, the COVID term. Is not going to last. I don't think so. No. And but I like that. What, what about doom scrolling and Zoom bombing? Doom scrolling. Doom scrolling. I can see sticking around. Actually. I could. I doom scroll all the time, and I've got to stop it. I think that one is definitely there. One other interesting thing, though, that I've noticed is I've learned technical meanings of words I never thought I would bother with. Like, I'm just curious about this. I realized I'm very medically undereducated. I never thought of the distance, the difference between infectious and contagious. Have you, have either of you thought of those differences or not? Well, I guess one, no, not really. I, I guess you could use them almost interchangeably. But you would say that the, a certain illness is, is a contagious disease. I'm, I'm not sure you would say that it was an infectious disease, would you? Or would there I'm be a curious. distinction? I'm wondering if a listener out there, maybe a doctor, uh, can give us a call at 212-209-2877 and help us with some of these terms. We, uh, there's okay. a. I'm, I'm, that fascinates me. Now I'm now I'm like sitting here. My brain yeah. is going. Boo, 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 boo. Well, some others, I'll, for example. I'll, if we don't get a doctor, and I'll I'll inform you of my non-medical expertise on the difference between the two words. I go ahead. Never Try. thought about this. That was sort of interesting. Just like I never thought about the efficacy of hand washing. I never knew it was that effective, ripping apart virus particles. I always thought, you know, keep your hands clean, but I didn't understand the real meaning behind it. There's another phrase that uh, I guess is only uh, that is unique to this situation: maskne, as in like acne for skin irritations that are caused by wearing a mask. I really like that one. I just there's there are certain neologisms that perfect that that are just perfect, and I think the combo of um, the sound and the meaning is just I, I like that one. But again, I don't think that one's going to stick around because I'm assuming yeah. we won't be doing so much mask wearing in the future. I'm certainly hoping. We won't need to, but we will see. Let's take another call. BAI, you're on the air. Hello? Yes, hi, hi. you're on the air. How are you? Okay. Hey, that's a general question, and it might be, uh, I don't even know if it's answerable, but um, I get the impression that English was just created out of older languages, say, I mean, a mishmash of language. It looks like a mutt language, and it, and it actually, you know, pretty, pretty bad, I mean, right? I mean, the English language is a pretty mutt you know, language picked up by other languages. Why even make a language like that? Why did you just stick with Greek and Latin? I mean, <laughs> why did we? No, I'm saying, what, really? I mean, you're coming up with new words and a new language. Isn't that just to be divisive and to separate people? Isn't that what they did in Babylon? I mean, actually, English like, comes mostly out of German, doesn't it? With the influences of of Latin and then later Greek. Am I wrong? And who made the who created these words, and where do you go to put your word in, and, and, like, who has the last say, and when was it created? Who came first, the Greek or the Latins? And, you know what I'm saying? I mean, <laughs> well, is, it, is, it, is, it true, is it true that English is a mutt language and is pretty poor? With all the i got to say, first of all, I love mutt and... language. I, I, I love <laughs> that. That's, that's my input right phrase. there. <laughs> but in defense of English, you know, I mean, mutts tend to be genetically stronger than a lot of purebred dogs. Because oh, it'll be the winner. <laughs> but like, again, why did they like... do that, and who did it, and why did? Where did the languages come from? And what I'm getting at is, why did we? You know, why do you? Who created the language? And why did they well, change from another language? First of all, you had the Celts in England, and they were invaded by the Angles and the Saxons, 
who brought a dramatic language from basically what mostly were probably where uh, Holland and Germany are today. They, for some reason, the Celtic didn't really stick, so it was mostly Anglo and Saxon. Then the Norman French invaded in 1066, and they brought Norman French into the language, and it became sort of a hybrid, like you have pig and pork. Pig is Anglo-Saxon, pork is uh, French. And we have that a lot in English. We have different, the same word, we have the same thing with two different words. Then after that, um, there was actually not that much early Latin, but then when the Norman French came in, Latin came to be used as well as old Greek words as the Renaissance occurred. Then after that, England uh, sort of conquered half the world and languages just sort of rushed into the thing. So they started so using words that, from colonies like pajamas from India. Yes. Pajamas. <laughs> oh, thank you for your answer. Thank Pajamas. you for your call. But, and, but I, I think that that's one of the, the good things about English, isn't it? That it uh, does, didn't limit itself to, to just what, uh, how it began. It was very open to, to using words like pajama. Yeah, I think that's one of the things I like, but I think that's also one of the most frustrating things about English, particularly if it's if it's not your first language. It can get horribly confusing because you've got so many different spellings, so many different of the same mm. sounds, and as Ross said, so like so many words meaning the exact same thing that came from various, you know, other places. So it's it's fun, but it can be crazy. I'm going to sneak another call in before we go to a break. BAI, you're on the air. Good afternoon, Leonard. How are you? I'm okay. I'm glad you called. Thank you for bringing this sister in. Um, She always uh, makes me go back to my books. Uh, (laughs) For instance, uh, ma'am, earlier... Catherine, you've uh, you've been called the sister. (laughs) I'll take it. (laughs) I was the youngest. (laughs) (laughs) You said earlier when you were talking, you said at the, um, uh, the early millennium, and I discovered. Oh my God! I did. Yes, mm. I discovered a word: the aughts. Oh yeah. How come we don't use that at a greater frequency? Okay, that, that's. My I first don't point. know because I love that. And some people called it the noughties too, which I really mm-hmm. liked. But no, that never caught on. But I thought that was more fun. But yeah, I think people don't use aught much. I mean, so you don't that's... think aught, even though mm-hmm. even though it applies. Right. It does apply, and it comes from the word not, not meaning mm-hmm. zero, zeros. Correct. Right? And so Correct. Uh, the second question I wanted to ask is, what do we call this past decade? But the third question I want to ask is this. As I read reviews and I reinvent my vocabulary here, I re-embrace it, I was a youngster at 16 years of age going to St. Mary's in a college program, and the first thing they gave us was the Funk and Wagnalls book, Beef Up Your Vocabulary. I'll never forget words that I memorized that I never used. And here it is. They're reviewing Sofia Coppola's new movie, the new movie with Bill Murray that she directed. Mm-hmm. It says Sofia Coppola is, is, is works on on way. I said, oh, my God, there's that word from 30 years ago, E-N-N-U-I. And if I right. – uh, I, I pronounce it on we. Am I wrong? On we. Okay, on we. Okay. But on we and Welshmerts. Okay, yeah, Welshmerts. That's a term. Okay, and I'm like, how can I use these terms? These are terms I haven't used in 35 years. They sound great, but you know, but it was nice to see that word being used again on we. But in yeah, well, I think lately you're seeing Velchmerts more and more too, because everybody is a bit world weary. So 
Yes. Yeah, gonna, but is, aren't those more. words valuable because they do describe something specific and there are no other words to uh, yes. they, that replace them? I guess you can come up with a phrase or descriptive, but ennui, uh, it, it says it all by itself, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And we don't see that word as often. We don't even hear it in movie dialogue. And I'm saying we're missing so much, you know, that could be incorporated in, uh, you know, because that word says a lot. <laughs> I mean, this, this, yeah. this it does. I have a we're feeling somebody would delete down. it from a script, a movie script, if, if it was written in. Yeah. Unless they were making a point. So why are we, why, you know, because these words, I mean, it, it almost said, that, and this is the review I was reading, you know, it was, it was like cathartic, you know, when mm -hmm. you use these type of words. Okay. <laughs> the last Thank thing you I for using say, the word cathartic. Okay. <laughs> the last thing I want to say, though, is in January, I happened to just read an excellent article. I haven't finished it yet. In fact, I'm looking for it. But, the, but this was an article written in the 90s, and the article was so excellent. It's called The Anatomy of Slave Speak. The Anatomy of Slave Speak. That article is so excellent. It brought me into what's his name's book? The the French guy, the crowd, the crowd, uh, the bond, the bond, the crowd. Uh, it taught it, it taught me about how words have power and how that power is injected. And I'm going by that previous caller. How English is a mishmash of words here. And that article, I mean, it had to. Re it makes you think about every single word. For instance, it. it Halfway in the article, he points two different civilizations, you know, like Columbus coming, and it says one civilization accepted, oh, uh, the king brought me here. It's by the king's decree that I accept these mm. things. And then the indigenous people says, what, what king? He says, mm -hmm. oh, I have powers that the king endowed. And then the indigenous people said, what, what powers? We don't know those powers. We can't relate to those powers. Then he shows another crowd, another indigenous group, but they relate differently, and then they get subjugated, of course, and that's the process of Western civilization right there. So my point is this, though. We inject, it even talked about terrorcrats, T-E-R-R-O-R-C-R-A-T, and he says that words have more power. He says the way that we force people to do things is three ways, money, violence, and words. And when, we put, when, when you say a king or you say a president, this person has the same, you know, organs that I have, but all of a sudden this person has more power. And so how we project in language, okay, that these words have power over us, that they have meaning. When you just, the law, the law of the land, the law is a bunch of words. You know, how do we accept the power that these words have? And this, the conclusion of this article was that these words were designed, as you said, you talk about, you know, the previous caller talking about the 10th century. These words were designed as controlling elites came into power to impose a certain ideological understanding that these words had power over us. Mm -hmm. and so well, That's very interesting. Of, the imposition of French into the, in England after uh -huh. England was conquered, that's a perfect example of that. Uh, but mm -hmm. I have to take a little break here. Uh, we are inviting listener calls, 212-209-2877. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI, New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I say either, you say neither, and I say neither, either, either, and either, neither, let's call the whole thing off. Yeah. 
My guests today are Catherine and Ross Petrus. Uh, their most recent book from 10 Speed Press is Awkward, A-W-K-W-O-R-D, Awkward Moments, A Lively Guide to the 100 Terms Smart People Should Know. And we're talking about language, especially uh, how language has changed to some degree as a result of the current situation. Uh, for example, we have, uh, during the pandemic, uh, we are, um, many events have been going virtual, meetings, performances, or, or classes now being held online instead of in person. Is this a new use of the word virtual? Is this a new word of the uh, use of the word virtual? Um, not really. I think virtual has been used in that sense, in the sense of um, doing things online for, gosh, how, how long? Um, it's got to have been. Uh, it's been really since the beginning of, uh, of the net, in that uh -huh. sense, I think. Like, well, there's the, the, but you also have remote. Now, remote is different. Remote working and learning used to describe people doing their tasks from home rather than going to an office or a school. Um, I, I, we've been talking in radio about doing remotes for a long time, so I guess I shouldn't be surprised. But, uh, but yeah, to have it I would be insulted if somebody told me that they felt I was a bit remote. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I want to say I don't know if you people have you both have noticed this, but I keep hearing in addition to words being used differently, um, and I'm going to say just one word. I keep hearing the word plasma in in news mm. conferences, both uh, both the president himself and um, newscasters saying plasma now. Have you noticed that? Mm. I've never heard it pronounced like that, but suddenly I'm hearing plasma instead of plasma. I haven't I heard haven't. that pronunciation, but then again, uh, we're, I'm so used to hearing people pronounce words differently because this country has so many different ways of pronouncing the same words. Mm -hmm. um, now, Karen has become a term for a middle-aged, entitled, and possibly, race, possibly racist white woman. It upsets a lot of people like me who have good friends named Karen. But do you think mm -hmm. words like that tend to stick? I don't think that one's going to stick. I think that's going to last uh, like another couple of years, and then it's going to go away. I think the one problem with it is just what you just said. A lot of us have friends who are named Karen, and it bothers them, and I think it's going to bother uh, – it's going to end up ending for that reason. A lot of times pejorative words, when, they, when, they, when they're used, and then they take on a certain import, and then people start going against them, the words then disappear. A lot of these words, though, disappear so quickly, it's really – it's hard to really realize how quickly slang words can come in and come out. I mean, um, I remember groovy as a kid. Groovy lasted a mm -hmm. couple of years, and I remember hearing older, younger kids saying it and thinking, they're, you know, what's wrong with them? And, and then there are words that seem to be specific to a time, like white lash, uh, a form of white backlash against racial justice movements. Yeah, I think that's the fascinating thing with words. I mean, to a great degree, the length of time they'll stick is, is contingent upon the, the thing that they're describing. Is that something that's going to continue? I mean, like in the case of all the words we've talked about that are specific to COVID, once, once COVID's gone, I mean, covid will have no meaning yeah. or riding the Rona. There, there's no need for it. But, but then other things, I think, stay because, like, the concept will continue. I mean, flattening the curve now, I think we all 
there's going to be another mm. pandemic or there's going to be something that will have to be flattened. The curve will have to be flattened and it'll apply again. So then there are like other things uh, that reflect changes in attitudes. For example, uh, we just celebrated Columbus Day, which many people decided should be called Indigenous People's Day. It depends on your point of view. Um, do you think the polarization of the country is reflected in new words and phrases? Oh, of course it is. Definitely so. But then as I think as as people come again together and as a consensus is achieved, I think the words either come or go as well. I think Columbus Day is going to be over. I don't think it's going to last. I think there's a growing consensus that uh, it should be Indigenous People's Day. And I think that probably Columbus Day will disappear. I've been away. So we'll have day. Indigenous People's Circle in, in Manhattan? <laughs> I think that's too long to fit on a street <laughs> sign, so no. <laughs> <laughs> I know we've talked about this a uh, before, but I am totally mystified by why some people can't form a sentence without springing at least one or two likes in it. Is this a, a fairly new development? Um, I don't think so. Because I don't remember people uh, that I grew up with saying, it, it's like the... Uh, the the guy came in like before the the, the clock like turned twelve. Well, I, granted, I think to that degree, I, the problem I'm having right now when I'm thinking about it is I hear me using it, and I mm. I, I don't like like use it correctly right there. I want to point out I don't like it when I use it that much. It's a filler, and and I think it's just one of those things that that you just throw in now without thought. But I'm trying to find, Ross, do you know when it first started catching on and to a great degree? Because it no, does I seem generational, I, doesn't it? I know I've used it all my life. So I, I go yeah. back for many decades at this point. But well, I, I don't hear you using it now during our shows. I like it to some degree. I mean, I think it's that people despise the usage of it, but it does yeah. set off a, uh, a word. I mean, it sets off a concept. And I think it does have a, a bit of value as a filler because we use fillers to to make our language richer and to make and to highlight certain things. So if I'm saying I'm really tired, like really tired, we oh, emphasize the really tired. About. I think it serves a purpose. Well, the, another it. phrase like that is "I mean." Uh, people say, "You know," and "I mean," and they often will begin a sentence on these television talk shows with "I mean." Well, I, I always thought "I mean." was a way of clarifying something. So how can you begin a sentence with, I mean? That's another example of, 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 of setting up. Uh, what's, what's, it's, it's, what is, oh, there's, gosh, now I can't remember the term. Ross, you know what I'm thinking of when, when you have something to start. What, what is the linguistic term? Gosh. Oh, it's, it's, but it, it, it sets you up. It's, it's your announcing that I'm going to say something now. It, it, it begins. It's often used also when you're changing subjects. Um, it's like a topic changer, and you're signaling to the listener now. Now I'm going to talk about something different. But I can't so remember the term for life. Me. Yeah, so is a big one with that as well. I mean, yeah, so. And people were using so back in uh, 100 years ago as well. So we talked to the guy last night, or that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. it's been used for a long time. And we uh, have a take calls. Our number here is 212-209-2877. 
so should we try to get some more callers on the line here? It's always fun. Like, uh, okay. Uh, (laughs) Always a pleasure to have uh, you both on and pleasure to listen to Leonard. Uh, Like, of course, is Valley Girl lingo, and Mm. it's also characteristic of teenage um, uh, expression because, you know, when you're a teenager, you're struggling to... um, you're struggling to master eloquence, and like is, uh, you're looking for a word that's like something. But mm-hmm. that's not what I called about. I, I called about uh, a grammatical detail, maybe nitpicking, that is not paid attention to too much, and that's the that-which distinction, the that clause and the which clause. And just to make it uh, specific, the that clause is used when the attribute you're talking about is the defining attribute of what you're talking about. And the which clause is when you're, we have an incidental attribute. So I have a modest example. Um, The ice cream store on, uh, that's located on National Boulevard is my favorite store. Okay, so that's uh, defined a specific attribute where it's located. But if you say uh, the Marvell ice cream store, which has a lot of flavors to offer, is my favorite ice cream store. So the a lot of flavors to offer is an incidental, not a defining attribute. So there we have the that which distinction, and uh, it's sort of an edit, more of an editorial fa- written form of editorial. Uh, well, let, let me uh, even go a little further than that. If you were to say uh, the uh, uh, whatever the Dairy Queen, which is located on such and such, aren't you really saying that Dairy Queen as opposed to the other Dairy Queens? Uh, well, the that's, dairy that's actually that nicely is put. located, huh? Yeah, the dairy that's queen nicely that's put. Lo- the, the Dairy Queen that's located on National Boulevard is a wonderful store. Yeah, I, I suppose so. I, I suppose that there, there's room. You're talking for about that specific there. one, rather than all the other Dairy Queens. Right. Yes. So then the that clause would be appropriate. But if it's incidental, that Dairy Queen, which has a strawberry on its menu, is quite a fine Dairy Queen. So that's, uh, you know, where you, there are places where you can make the distinction and make the right choice. And where the wrong choice sometimes does stand out as being the wrong choice, which being very often used when that is the appropriate word to choose. Thank you so much for calling and confusing me a bit <laughs> right, further. You didn't like that. You didn't like that. I was going to say. No, if I, thought it was great. Look, I thought it was trouble. great. I haven't thought of it, but it's absolutely true. We're going to try to sneak another call in here. Hi, BAI, you're on the air. Hello. Yes, hi. Hi, how are you? Okay. Um, I have a background as an English language teacher. Um, Help me with the epidemic. Help me with with the (laughs) epidemic, please. Not, Not the physical one, but the, I'm trying to understand why there seems to be an epidemic of the use of the word. Multiple. Mm. Nobody says several. Yes. Don't hear many anymore. And, yes. And that often. That's another multiple. one that what rubs me the wrong way. Here? Please help. You're me. absolutely right. I hadn't thought yeah. about it, but you always hear multiple now. I yeah. think it's because it sounds. It's part of the uh, let me sound uh, scientific and intelligent uh, that sort of trend that people have now. And multiple, for some reason, sounds weightier than many, doesn't it? There are multiple uses. There are many uses. Multiple. Right. Multiple sounds. You see what I'm saying? It has this, like, sort of importance. 
I right, fly and solo. Pl- and pluralistic, right. Yeah. <laughs> wow, but it's like it's everywhere now, at least when you're yeah. watching the television or any other video device. Absolutely. And it's just, it's just driving me nuts. <laughs> Thank now you I'm so much for your call. I'm going to hear it a hundred times today, I bet. <laughs> oh, wait, I, I have very little time, but I wanted to address uh, a couple of new words that you find in dictionary.com uh, in the area of social justice. They've added colorism and microaggression. Are they both terms of racism? Microaggression is, is being widely used now. I see it all the time online. And I think, as Ross was saying, this is just another example of, of uh, words being brought out of, as you just said, racism, uh, the whole notice you know, from the George Floyd on, on Black Lives Matter, et cetera, et cetera. And I think these are going to stick around. What do you think, Ross? Colorism, I think, definitely will. Actually, it was interesting because I first, uh, I was actually shocked when I was in Egypt many years ago. I was boasting about the tan I got. And this woman um, who was from uh, Upper Egypt, which is a blacker area, was very upset about that because she thought of light skin as being preferential. And that was like my first introduction into colorism as a general term, backwards and forwards. I think it's here to stay. That was 20 years ago, too. The uh, social media, and I guess social media is a new term, uh, have brought on a whole slew of, of new words like cyber mob, virtue signaling, and keyboard warrior. Do new technologies always bring new language with them? Um, yeah, they do, because, I mean, it's anything new uh, brings something into the language. And I think with technology... And, and social, well, social media just as as a as a uh, act as something we do participate on social media. Inevitably, you get new language uh, stemming from that. But sometimes the words don't stick. I mean, I remember xeroxing, and I, mm-hmm. I would have thought xeroxing would be here forever. That term. Yeah. We have a new technology invented by Xerox company, and the word became ubiquitous. And then now, if you go to a library, we've talked about this before. You. Don't say Xeroxing, you say photocopying. Yeah. That's a weird one, because I thought Xeroxing was here to stay. In fact, if you say Xeroxing to somebody of a certain age, they won't have a clue what you're talking about. Although, interestingly enough, we still say dial the phone. Yes. And flip the channel. We do. I wonder if that's going to change. Well, let's yeah. hope people don't flip the station after we end this, because unfortunately we've <laughs> run out of time. But Catherine Petrus and Ross Petrus have been my guests on today's show and their most recent book from 10 Speed Press. Uh, they have three books from 10 Speed Press, but the most recent one is Awkward Moments, a lively guide to the 100 terms smart people should know. I look forward to our next show together. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. It was fun. Well, that's one of the reasons we invite you back because it's always a lot of fun. And on top of it all, I think... These shows tend to be a bit enlightening at the same time. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Barbara Kahn, who prepared today's interview. And many thanks as well to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to my executive producer, Jesse Lent, for all of the important work they do throughout the week. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. And uh, we're also available as a podcast on iTunes and anywhere else that podcasts are available. Podcast, another one of those words. And you can find links to all of our past shows on our website, another one of those words, lettered at large.com. 
And if you would like to comment on any of our shows, if you just want to say hello, our email address is lettertlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take a few minutes to ask you for your support for the station. If you care about Leonard Lopate at Large and all of the other great programs on WBAI, we need your help to keep this thing going. So I hope you'll step up and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with, comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602 right now to keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on this program alive on the New York radio dial. If I can speak frankly to you here for a moment, we especially need your help to get back on our feet after this pandemic has made the station's financial situation so difficult. So we're asking everyone who regularly tunes into Leonard Lopate at Large and is financially able to step up right now by going online to give to WBAI.org by calling 516-620-3602 to help keep the show and the station on the air. And one great way to show your support without having to lay out a lot of money at any one time is to become a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy. There are listeners who contribute $10, $15, $20, whatever, whatever to, uh, they can to keep the station and the show running. And it's a great way for you to spread out your support throughout the year while giving WBAI a stable base of support by having that monthly amount deducted from your checking account, your credit card, or whatever's easiest for you. And of course, you can cancel at any time. If you enjoy the unique conversations that our regular contributors like Catherine and Ross Petrus bring you, we also have Bob Henley coming up next week, Josh Wesson, Pete Morosky, Sean Patrick McDonald, Monona Russell. Let us know by stepping up and supporting WBA on the name of this show. And no matter what level you're comfortable donating at, the important thing is that you do it right now so we can continue to bring you these interviews with people that we hope you find engaging for an hour. One last time, the number to call 516-620-3602, or you can go online to give to WBAI.org. And please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. From all of us, thank you.